and we are on the boulevard, sort of. Going sort of on the boulevard, QE2, sort of. Yeah, we're moving all the way um, across the Atlantic. So now we are in, as Alyssa has said, oh, yes, welcome special guest star Alyssa Marbach to the podcast again. Hi, she has everyone. joined us on the boulevard <laughs> and she's actually in the driver's seat. Um, Alyssa Ooh. has very recently, um, I don't want to say discovered, but, but given into your curiosity about the great British baking show and in almost record time, we've watched what like five five and a half six seasons so yeah i know i know you as both a big food tv watcher and real life baker have some thoughts about both the bake-off and the differences between american baking shows and the british baking shows so the floor is yours yeah um i never like i said i never watched the great british bake-off or baking show um, until maybe, I don't know, three weeks ago. <laughs> um, I know people love it. Even people who don't like food shows or food competition shows are like obsessed with it. It's international phenomenon. For some reason, I just never got into it. Um, but I do watch a lot of food competition shows like Chopped. Um, the Food Network has holiday bake, like, a holiday baking show at a holiday baking championships, they call it, at Christmas time. They do a spring one. They do a Halloween one. Um, they, they have the kids baking. Kids baking, which is really sweet. They do it a couple times. Worst Cooks in America, Speak Bobby Flay. I love all of these things. But, like, the most analogous thing is, like, the holiday baking championship or the spring one. Um, and... I was really taken aback by the British one, the Great British Baking Show, and that I kept saying, like, well, they don't win money? What do they win? All they win is a cake stand? You know, because in the American versions, they always win $25,000 in, like, a full kitchen worth of stuff. Um, and the American versions are very loud, and they're very, you know, American. And it's silly to say that, but there's, like, so many cultural differences between these American competitions and the, this British show. And there is a British and a, there is an American version called the great American bake off or baking mm-hmm. show that Paul Hollywood, who also is a judge in the British one is a judge of, I've never watched it. It's on ABC. I don't want to ever watch it. <laughs> um, but I was just struck. How oh, quiet everything was. Can you repeat that? We we, we lost you. I think you. we lost you for a sense there, huh? Oh, okay. What was the last thing you heard? Uh, just the last sense. I don't remember. Right after you were done talking about Paul Hollywood. Well, yeah. it's like I never want to watch the American one. Sorry, guys. Um, but I was <laughs> just struck by how quiet the British, the Great British Bake Off show is. Um, how nice everyone is to one another how yeah because i mean on some of these american ones they can be psychopaths yeah they really are especially on chopped you know they're like always gonna take someone down (laughs) you know what i mean like that's like a phrase that they use all the time i'm gonna take you down i'm taking Mm -hmm. you down you're going down i have to beat bobby play i have to show that i'm the best i have to it's like a lot of real like toxic masculinity runs rampant on chopped Mm -hmm. and beat bobby play 
Um, as someone who wants to go to uh, pastry school and work as a pastry chef, they make me not want to work in restaurants because they're all assholes. Um, and, you know, there's always like a catch on the American, like there's always like a theme, there's always a, um, a, twist, a, a twist, a secret ingredient. You have to use, you know, sauerkraut in your chocolate cake. Um, it's just very chaotic. The American version is just very chaotic. And it's very, and the judging is very negative And, you know, they can't say, they have to say a negative thing if they say a positive thing. That is proven fact, especially on Chopped. So watching the Great British Baking Show, I was like, wait, they know about the two out of the three challenges beforehand and they are nice and like they're rooting for one another and they're helping each other and like they don't have to be negative and maybe because they don't win money. So it doesn't matter. Maybe it's because they really seem to be doing it because of their love of like being the best at this thing that they love and, and work at in their personal lives. Right. And you know, it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea. You know, they, they can go home for Monday through Friday and work and be with their family and practice the challenges and then come back to the tent on the weekends and, um, and do this and then go back home. So they're not like sequestered for two weeks and they don't have, they don't have to leave their lives or their jobs. So, um, and it seems like every time someone gets eliminated, they all sort of say, you know, you know, this was like something I had to look forward to. I really liked the people I met, you know, I finally was doing something for myself. Um, and it's sweet. It's like a nice. And they're like working class and middle class yes, people with yes, families yes, yes. and. That's and, another thing. They're and, not and professional. Lives. Yeah, they're not professionals. They're just home bakers. Um, that are just doing this as a hobby. And so it's, it, it, it's very nice. The hosts are really nice. They're like practically therapists to these contestants. Mm-hmm. Like no one's out to take each other down. No one's out to like be the best. Um, they do seem to root for one another. That, yeah, I was just going to say. You know, Paul Hollywood is a bit of an asshole, but like compared to say somebody like, Gordon Ramsay, who is British too, but or Jeffrey Zakarian, or somebody who or Alex Trebek. (laughs) (laughs) Sure, Uh, but that's a horse of a different color. But like you know, there he's not really he's not mean and nasty. You know, nine times out of ten he says nice things. He does say nice things to them, and even his negative feedback is like it doesn't taste good. You know. Which could be biting if you made a cake, but um, the one thing I can't, I, I, my favorite thing about the show, and the one thing I can't wrap my head around is the technical challenge, the one that they have to do that most of the time I've never even heard of the things they've made, but I'm just like confused by, it's the challenge that they don't know, that they haven't practiced, but I'm just confused by their inability to make certain things like they had to make a pineapple upside down cake and they were like I don't know how to caramelize the sugar and it's like that's a basic thing if you bake um like they get very frazzled easily 
they're very hairy. They drop things all the time, like, which amused me. But then at the same time, they're just like, oh, look, my cake fell apart. Oh, well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, like, which is very funny. And um, they also avoid sort of the drama of there's like no tr- real drama of the elimination. You know, you typically know who's going to get eliminated. But in the American versions of these things, they like will be like, you're safe, you're safe, you're safe, you're safe. Okay, now we're down to the bottom two. You know, like the American Idol thing as well. Goes back yeah, they time. don't really drag it out. They don't drag it out. They're just like, you. we have our star baker, we have our who's being eliminated. And you could typically tell who's going to be who by the end of the episode. Um, it's just It's just interesting because we don't get a lot of like, people being nice to one another and being positive and and trying to help they help each other a lot like mm-hmm. they're not mean-spirited you know Doug and I have said the same thing about like Schitt's Creek as like it's so rare to get a television show nowadays when everything is gritty and cynical and cutthroat and people are just nasty to each other on Twitter and social media all the time that people being nice and people just yeah, I watched a couple seasons of the Bake Off um, in like five, six years ago, and I just remember that was the one thing I was really watching right before the 2016 election, and I wrote a lot about how like this is the best example I can think of of people, of adults actually acting well and setting a good example when everything else around us is you know, you know, Nero fiddling around while Rome burns. Yeah, um, and uh, you know. That continues. I don't know if you've ever watched this one, Karen. But, oh, um, yeah, I have. It, there, you it, did. Oh, it's you very have. soothing. Yeah, it is very totally. Soothing. It is. It is like chicken soup for the soul. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, just I know that's not really a right metaphor. But yeah. I just find it sort of extraordinary that they're like, bake this complicated cake, and people are just like, very well, and they have no yeah, exactly. I, I'm like, I could never do that. Well, they do get to practice at home, so I guess that's part of it. Because most of the time, their challenges, especially in the showstopper, I'm like, what? They're like, you know, build a house from gingerbread with a working toilet. And then, you know, so I can use the toilet and then make the poop out of chocolate cake. And it's like, oh, okay. Like, it's so stupid. It's like, you know, make the Tower of London out of gingerbread. Like, who wants, like, why is this the challenge? I do think their challenges are really convoluted. Um... But it might be because they're not super explained very well because they've been practicing all along. I kind of like the 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 fact that they can practice um, because I guess the intention of the show is not to show them being super stressed out because on American versions of these things, they're like super stressed out and they're like falling apart. And it's because Americans like love the drama. Um, like I said, I've never watched the American Baking Show or the Mer- Great American Bake Off, whatever they call it. So I wonder if, I wonder what that's like. I know it's on ABC and I know like Jeff Foxworthy hosted it and and I think Nia Vardalos and her ex-husband hosted it for a while. Yeah. So I imagine it's not the same thing. <laughs> Just imagine, I can't imagine like 10 American or 12 Americans are not going to do this for no money you know like i feel like it's probably a more obnoxious version 
Yeah, I don't know if I'll I ever care to watch the American version, but I could watch. And this is how I felt in Shit's Creek. I could watch the British baking show forever. Hmm. So that's our zen. It is a zen. I will. Yes, it is a zen. Um, Alyssa, I do because it just came to Netflix last week. I do want to make sure you get your say in the trial of the Chicago Seven, which you know you hold dear to your heart for at least one big reason, right? Chicago. <laughs> no, we do love um, the city, but yes. This is my thing on it. Um, the movie's not great because the directing is not great. Um, the f- it's sort of more theatrical than I think cinematic um, because it's mostly the trial and then we intersperse with flashbacks of the actual riot or what led to the riot. We never really get any um, character development. We don't really know who these people are. It tries too hard to like relate to current politics and current affairs and which I get, but it's a little heavy handed. Same thing as how I felt about Aaron Sorkin's adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, and I don't think we said, but Aaron Sorkin both wrote and directed uh, right. this movie. I think it's his second feature. After Molly's game. After Molly's game, which, yes, which I didn't um, see. And this was going to be released in the theaters, and during COVID at one point, they eventually said, okay, Netflix will post it. But, you know, the cast is very good. Um, Some of them are excellent. Some of them are really good. Mark Rylance is really good, um, as he always is. Sasha Baron Cohen is really good. As Abby Hoffman. And Jeremy Strong is amazing, because he's Jeremy Strong. And that's the only reason to watch the movie. And tweet. <laughs> I've got nothing else to say. Just watch it for Jeremy Strong. He's amazing. Yeah, I mean, if you don't know much about the trial, it's... Uh, I think it's a movie that's really written for people who don't know much, but I think by the end of the movie, you don't necessarily know all there is to know to the story. Um, And it is far more about... um, We're talking about seven people that are, uh, you know, on trial. You really only get to know information of about, like, two or three of them, even though there's a full cast. Um, it's more about, like Alyssa said, tying into very current themes about, like, fighting the man and institutions of power. Franklin Jella plays the judge, who is historically awful, but is almost, like, used as a punching bag um, to be, you know, to be like, nowadays it's very cultural to, you know, hate people in positions of power that abuse it. Um, and I wish it hadn't sometimes sunk into caricature. Um, but it also feels like a relic. It feels like some of the um, big courtroom dramas of the 80s and not necessarily something like A Few Good Men, which is theatrical. Mm. Aaron Sorkin wrote it first as a play, but then adapted it really well as a film, I think, while still keeping the, the big dramatic pieces intact. This one is almost more structured like, I keep going back to The Accused with Jodie Foster because it yeah. focuses on a jury trial and it like mm-hmm. a lot of the information is given to us in flashback. Um, though the flashback here I found ultimately to be a bit less rousing. Um, I want to say one actor I'm not particularly fond of is Eddie Redmayne who plays Tom Hayden, one of the other significant players in this. And 
I'll just never find him convincing. No, um, his American accent's terrible. He's just so, you know, people said he sounded like Kermit the Frog when he sang Les Mis. That's exactly <laughs> what he sounds like. Like, he's, he's... I don't understand his career, but we'll just leave it at yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, he's so unconvincing, but, yeah. He you know, played I, someone in a biopic that people knew. Right. Um, I... I guess the only other takeaway, it sounds like, I'm still giving this a thumbs up. I'm not, I'm still saying oh, this I is worth too. watching. This is not, this is not any hill to die on in why they don't make them like they used to. It's worth seeing, especially if you already subscribe to Netflix. Absolutely. So, you know, the actors that we mentioned are terrific. I think the only other surprise for me was that of all people, Aaron Sorkin doesn't do things that feel pat or compromised. When you look at his other scripts, certainly the social network is, you know, it, it's not even that it broke the rules of screenwriting. Is screenwriting it just created its own and followed that playbook? This feels like he's following an earlier playbook, and I don't know if that's because yeah. he didn't just adapt it, but focused as a director. Um, but again, I say I recommend this movie. I say watch it. Karen, I think it's, it's better than Hubie Halloween, like we were okay. talking last week. <laughs> I like Hubie Halloween. Um, I'm just saying, I watch this first. I just think that he should have, like, it should have been, like, a Reuben and Hoffman biopic, which I know we sort of have that already with Abby Hoffman, but, like, they sort of carry the movie, um, and they're, they seem to have more, like, there's too much, you know, you want to focus on Bobby Sales, you want to focus on, like, you know, some of the other guys in the seven, but, like, Hoffman and Ruben really carry the most material. Um, it should have been about them. Peppered in with the trial. Yeah, I mean, there, dramaturgically, there are some choices that uh, that surprised me by feeling rote. But yeah. such is life. So, so there, we've gone to England. We've gone to Chicago. And now we basically go to hell in a handbasket with the HBO docu-series The Vow, which we thought had finished, and it turns out they just finished season one. Oh, there's going to be more. So it kind of reinforces what Alyssa and I have thought through this season's nine episodes, and that they withheld a lot of information, probably because they knew they would return and were saving some of the other interviews, confessionals, other uh, aspects of info to focus on because it was going to come back. I mean, Alyssa, how would you describe the Nexium cult in, like, five sentences? Um, I have to preface this by saying that I find cults fascinating, and I knew... <laughs> I do, too. And I, I, I do, yeah, too. Fascinating. Yeah, and I knew a lot about Nexium... I did not. Um, going into watching the vow, which is why I want to watch it. Um, next, it seems like it started out um, sort of like an L, an MLM thing, but for self help and like life coaching. And these in and mm-hmm. yeah. actors wanted to, you know, struggling actors felt like. They were getting some sort of either um, affirmation or, or I guess affirmation as to why their careers weren't better. And um, Keith Raniere, who led the thing, was 
basically like you're a shitty person and you should feel sorry for you should feel bad for yourself and they would cry and go yes you're right um, <laughs> and yeah. I feel so affirmed um and they'd play volleyball in the middle of the night and they you know, but it sort of devolved or and I guess what I'm getting from, what I got from the series is that like they would pay money for, I guess, training or whatever, and then eventually they would they'd pay like thousands of dollars for the for training or to be involved in this thing, and get different sashes or, or scarves or whatever, and then eventually they'd start making money from it. But I don't think anyone actually made money from it, unless you were like one of the real higher ups, and then it eventually devolved into this thing called DOS, which I've, I don't know if that was an acronym for anything, but that led to a lot of women like being slaves to one another and being branded and having to ask permission to do things like to eat. They'd have to ask their masters for like, can I have 45 calories? Um, can I go to this one's wedding and so on and so forth. And then, which this is not touched upon in the show, but I think eventually it led to them being, um, like coerced into having sex with Keith Ranieri, which is like one of the, the big the cult guru, yeah. yeah, yeah, which is one of the big sticking points for why he is facing life in prison for sex trafficking. And Allison Mack, who was like his number two in the whole thing, which the tra the series doesn't even really they like mention her, like, oh, yeah, Allison Mack, Allison Mack, but they don't really discuss her or her involvement in it too much they don't they're kind of like elusive when it comes to the whole sex thing didn't you think yeah they, they've said nothing more than like three sentences about the fact that perhaps there may have been some like sex slavery going on within the the cult that was kind of the whole perp the whole reason why it kind of fell apart though because and, and people, people came forward and large. yeah yeah and people came forward and started because because without that it was just a bunch of weird people doing a bunch of weird things yeah you know they were playing volleyball and they were like you know doing trust balls and stupid yeah, and you know like, i mean you know, like that's like it's your life it's your choice if this is how yeah. you want to spend your time and your money fine Right, right, but when it turned, when it came to like coercion and what was, you know, ended up being sex trafficking, like ultimately sex trafficking and and rape. I mean, like, how can they? Why would you even like? How could you even ignore that as a documentary? No, exactly. And the structure is really bizarre. Every episode yeah. kind of goes into a little bit of someone's backstory who has been willing to talk to the camera and participate. And there, there are two pretty well established documentarians who. Are who did this docu series, but the people that are the focal points are several big members of the cult who had defected. Um, but these are people who were Hollywood people. They were actresses. One of the main guys is a filmmaker and cinematographer himself. And so what we're seeing is a lot. And another one is Catherine Oxenberg, whose daughter was in the cult, um, and she herself was on Dynasty and and has right. been you know. A Hollywood personality. So we get a lot of photos of them in very soft light, looking <laughs> really good in designer clothes, showing the homes they live in, showing driving around Malibu, talking on their phone, showing their car. Like a lot of it is really like not even subtle, just sort of unspoken 
not propaganda, but like, but like really just building themselves up and making it about them as they're talking about these horrible things that they witnessed, never were really a participant of, but somehow believed that enabled and had to break free of. And well, it ends up just being a big advertisement for yeah. themselves. Well, there's two things. Um, and Doug, you and I talked about this with um, the Alex Winter documentary watched a few The Showbiz Kids documentary we Showbiz saw. Showbiz Kids, yeah. where we were like, this is fine and, and entertaining, but it doesn't tell the whole story of what it's like to be a child star in Hollywood because Alex Winter could only get certain people to agree to speak with him. So it's just their story and their perspective. Right. So really what you're getting from The Vow is you're getting like maybe five people who two like this married couple seem to have like gotten out. He was very high up. He was like a really close confidant to Keith Raniere um, and his wife. But they got out before the weird sex stuff happened. Um, and then, like, one who was branded, but she basically got out right after, which is, like, another thing. We're, like, how could you be an adult, like, and somebody tells you, take your clothes off, we're blindfolding you, we're going to get in a car, and you're going to be branded. Like, I don't understand. Or, or if ever. someone says, I want you to text me secrets about your husband or your mother that we will use against you later on, but you must do so. Why would you do so willingly? Right. That's I know. Not- yeah. And, but, you know, I, so I think that they could only get Nexium from the perspective of the people that were willing to talk, but it also seems like these people were trying to like exonerate themselves, even though they didn't commit crimes necessarily and actually testified against Keith Raniere. But like, they sort of were just like, you know, I, it, it felt like, well, I feel guilty that this happened, even though I didn't do anything. So I'm going to try to like show myself in a positive light. But the whole show doesn't really amount to anything. Like, it ends with Keith Raniere's arrest, arrest, but we don't really get a sense of, like, what are his charges? Like, why? Why was he arrested? Mm-hmm. What, what was going on? And another issue that Doug and I talked about every time we watched it is, it's, so they have all this footage of Keith Raniere and, like, professional footage of him and some of the Nexium, I guess. Over the course uh, of like 20 classes. years or whatever, yeah. Yeah, and they also have all these recorded phone calls and all these other things. So the timeline of everything feels, felt skewed to me because I was like, well, wait, is this a reenact? Are these like reenactment phone calls? Like, are we watching them actually? Because we watch a lot of like, the core people, the core four or five people that we have followed throughout the series, like talking to the FBI and like talking to people who like, like there was a New York Times article. So they're talking to the Times and they're talking to like people who know things about cults. So we're like, wait, is this happening in real time? So have they been following these people for years now? And now they made this documentary series. Like I was never quite clear on timeline. I was never quite clear on like what I was watching, 
Right, Doug? Did you get a sense of yeah, that, too? Yeah, and well, it's also weird because they kind of say something to the audience in the first or second episode about how one of these main people we're following who escaped, Mark, mm-hmm. is a filmmaker and was told was asked by Mark Ranieri, by Keith Ranieri, to uh, film a lot of their sessions, a lot of their speeches, that sort of thing. But the footage that we're watching is someone else videotaping Mark with his camera filming Keith or talking to Keith. So there's a third party involved who's never mentioned. It's almost like the whole thing feels fake. I don't believe it is, but that's the feel because I keep thinking, so who is this other person who was also in the room recording it? And then how did these people get that footage to use for the HBO documentary? Well, one of the documentarians took Nexium classes. That's but they wouldn't that, have, but they, is this their I, stuff that they recorded? Because I didn't think I that was the case. I don't think so. But you're right. Like, who was recording it's not Mark? whatever the case is. Who was recording Mark recording Keith? Right. Like Because that's the and, stuff that's quality footage that makes up the bulk of what we're watching. I mean, I don't think it's fake or anything, but I just, like, my it's question is... just so is, curious like, how they got it all. What was their intention... Like, have they been making this documentary or this docuseries for 10 years now? Like, what's the deal? And also, you're right. I guess what, because when we had, like, three episodes left and two episodes left, I was like, I don't think, I was like, they haven't really talked about Alice and Mac. Like, I don't know if they're going to, like, really talk. It's like the last episode going to be about, like, you know, all the charges and that, because... It wasn't just them that got arrested. A couple other people did as well. And so, but they didn't. And, I, and I'm reading now that season two is going to be more about, like, the, hi, the other higher-ups, like Bronsman, the Bronsman heir and, like, Nancy Salzman and, I guess, Allison Mack and whatever. But so it's like you had this, you were intended for it to be a second season all along, I guess. Yeah, I just have to assume that was always part of their deal. We just didn't know. But because we don't talk to any of the ones with the criminal charges, or not talk, you know, because they're not participating in the documentary, and because none of the seeming survivors of the actual sexual abuse are really involved in this, and because they don't really go into any of the elements of the sex stuff, it kind of feels like the whole thing is arbitrary. Now, I know there's uh, either Stars or Epics has their own... Yeah. Stars has their own documentary about it. I imagine that's going to be way more sensational. I don't know that that will answer more questions. You know, I think it will kind of do the opposite, but um, but it will focus on the thing that I think was actually the draw for most people who tuned into The Vow. Well, I just think there were many questions not, not even asked, let alone unanswered. That one's going to be about India Oxenberg, I think, specifically. Mm. Okay. Well, I say we're not going to watch it, but we'll probably give it a shot. Probably not going to watch it. Um. I, no, you know, there's and there's also like, like Catherine Oxenberg wrote a book. Sarah Edmondson, who, um, is featured. She has in the podcast the and wrote the book, right? Oh, she has the podcast too. She's featured on Vow. You know, she's an actress. Um. She was the one who said she was branded. She wrote a book. So there's a lot of books going on around about this. I'm sure more will come out. Um, 
but as a as a docu series, The Vow just it's like too it was too long, but yet didn't include enough. It was poorly edited. Um, I don't recommend it. Yeah, yeah, that's it in a nutshell. But that's a, sort of how I feel about like all of these. Like we watched the um the Jeffrey Epstein one on Netflix and Tiger King, and it's like. They're sensational. They tell you nothing. They tell you nothing. And, you know, like I said, you only get the perspective of people who are willing to talk. And and it's usually the people who are willing to talk who have, like, a real axe to grind or not necessarily with the Jeffrey Epstein one. But, you know, like, you only get the perspective of people willing to talk, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Or who are using it as a way to promote themselves. But there we are. So that was the vow. Alyssa, I want to thank you for joining us. Karen, I just want to make sure you're still awake. Yeah, I'm fading fast, though. So. All right, guys. It's bedtime for Karen. It's so bedtime. Thank you for joining us on uh, this short but sweet episode of The Boulevard. As always, we hope you're well. Um, if you have any ideas, suggestions that we can talk about next week, which is, I guess, going to be our Halloween episode this year, um, we're all ears. Um, and, and uh, yeah, if you guys had a different take on The Vow or um, have any recipes for Alyssa to try out after listening to her talk about The Bake Off, uh, you can find us on uh, Back on the Block Pod on Facebook. We always love to hear from you. Any five-star reviews are always welcome. They give us life, metaphorically, but kind of literally, too. And I think that uh, that does it, right? I think we're good. I think we're great. <laughs> we think you guys are great. So thank you, and stay well. And we uh, will be back next week. Bye. 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 Bye.